if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives, say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. What does it mean for salvation to be by grace through faith? How would you describe saving faith to a person who doesn't know the Bible? There's much confusion both in the world and in the church about what it means to believe in Christ for salvation. That's why followers of Christ must be ready to define faith according to Scripture. Saving faith involves trusting in Christ and turning from sin. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. We must clearly convey this fourth thread, the necessity of faith, so that unbelievers will know how to respond to the gospel. Here's David with a sermon entitled, The Necessity of Faith, from Mark chapter 1. If you have his word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 1. This is the second gospel account in the New Testament. Mark chapter 1. We're talking about threads or specific components of the gospel and how as followers of Christ we can weave these threads, these gospel truths into the fabric of our everyday conversations. In the process, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And for those of you who are here tonight and you're, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, we, we don't want to beat around the bush on this one. Like we want you to know the gospel. We want you to know the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And so our hope is that even as we talk about sharing the gospel, that that you might hear this good news and tonight that you might believe it, that you might receive God's grace toward you in Christ. Just to sum up where we've been, we have talked about how God is the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things and all of us have rebelled against God. The Bible says we've turned aside from God to ourselves. God deserves to be at the center of our lives. He's designed our lives. We might experience deepest joy and satisfaction with Him at the center of our lives. And then others next, and then ourselves last. We have inverted that order. We've put ourselves at the center of our lives, what we want, what we think is best for our lives. Others we put next, oftentimes as a way of serving ourselves. And then God, if anywhere, we have put last. And so we've turned aside from God to ourselves. And as a result of our rebellion against God, we are separated from God infinitely separated from God. One sin against an infinitely holy God is worthy of infinite offense. It causes infinite separation from God. You say, well, I thought God is loving. And He is loving, but He's also just. And by His nature as just, He must condemn sin and find sinners guilty. And so you've got this tension. We talked about this last week, a divine dilemma. How can a just God say to guilty sinners that they are innocent? can't. The very moment he does that, he would no longer be just. And what that means is we, in and of ourselves, are dead without God, infinitely separated from him and worthy of infinite separation forever. We will all eventually physically die and we deserve eternal spiritual death. But the good news is God is gracious and he has sent his son, fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live. To die the death that we deserve to die on a cross. And to conquer the enemy that we cannot conquer. Sin and death itself. Now, that's where we've been the last, last few weeks. The question is, spring from those truths, well then how can this work of Christ, God's grace toward us, how can that be applied in our lives? So just because you just died on the cross and rose from the grave doesn't mean every single person in all the world is now restored to God. This work has to be applied in our lives. We have to receive God's grace. So how do we receive it? And that's where we come to this thread that we're calling today the necessity of faith. Now, there's a lot of confusion about faith in our culture, even in the church today. I've shared before that almost four out of five Americans, so almost 80% of Americans, identify themselves as Christians. So profess some level of faith in Christ. But what that faith means 
varies all across the board. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago, when people say they believe in God or don't believe in God, the God they believe in or don't believe in, there's all kinds of different ideas that they have in their mind about that God. So when people say they have faith, there's all kinds of ideas that they have in their mind about what that faith means. And so we have this dangerous tendency to swing back and forth between two pendulums, particularly when it comes to faith in Christ. On one hand, we can so dilute faith that we don't actually have it. We can so lower the bar of faith that it doesn't mean anything. People say, well, I believe in Jesus, big deal. Just about every intoxicated person I've ever met on the street says they believe in Jesus. Even demons in hell believe in Jesus. This is part of why I wrote uh, that book, Follow Me, recently, because there's all kinds of people who claim faith in Jesus. But it's, it's no more faith than demons have. I titled the first chapter of that book, Unconverted Believers, to get a picture of scores of people, not just here, around the world, scores of people who would say they believe in Jesus, but their hearts are far from Jesus. Their lives are not following Jesus. We have so diluted Christianity in our day to the point where as long as you Say you believe certain truth, assent to certain truths, or you say certain words, then you're a Christian. You have faith in Christ. But it's not true. Jesus himself said that many will say to him one day, Lord, Lord, and he will tell them, I never knew you. So there are serious, eternally serious consequences to diluting faith. So that's one level of confusion. But then if we're not careful, we can swing the pendulum to the other side where we can so complicate faith that we can't ever know if we have it. Meaning, and in all our efforts not to dilute faith, to say that faith is more than just mere intellectual sin, it's more than just saying certain words, if we're not careful, we can so complicate faith that people never really feel like they have it. So if faith involves commitment to Christ, then how can I know if I'm committed enough? Or if faith involves surrender to Christ, then when can I know if I'm surrendered enough? And in the process of trying to take faith seriously, we can actually complicate it so much to the point where we don't even know if we have it. And the end result here is an endlessly frustrating, supposedly Christian life. To be a bit vulnerable, this is one of the greatest concerns I have with some of what I've written, both in Radical, Follow Me, and my efforts to address the dilution of the cost of discipleship in contemporary Christianity. I fear that some people come away from that and say, okay, then what do we need to do in order to be radical enough for Jesus? Or what steps do I need to take if I'm really surrendered or really committed to Jesus? And this is, this is where, whether, I'm what, whether what I'm writing or more importantly, for us as a faith family, I want to continually bring us back to the essence of what faith is according to the Bible. I don't want, I don't want to dilute faith, but I also don't want to complicate faith. So let's think about the necessity of faith. Specifically, what is this kind of faith that restores men and women to God? And then how can we lead others to put that kind of faith in Christ in their own life? How can we weave this gospel thread into our interactions with others? So let's start with knowing this gospel thread, the necessity of faith. The one sentence here that sums up this truth in the gospel. We've already seen three. These are on the inside of the Threads booklet. First one, God is the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. Second, we have each created by God. We've all been corrupted by sin. Third, Jesus alone is able to remove our sin and restore us to God, leading to this fourth thread. We can be restored to God only through faith in Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus. Now, now, Every word there is important. So let's split it up into two parts. First, we can be restored to God. And this is where I just want to remind us that this is the goal of the gospel. When we think about the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, and when we tell other people the gospel, we want to be clear that the goal of the gospel is not heaven. And the goal of the gospel is not happiness. And the goal of the gospel is not joy or peace or satisfaction. Not that any of those things are bad. They're good. But they're not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is God. God is the one we want. God is the one we need. And there's all kinds of people who would be glad to do whatever it takes in order to get to heaven that have no desire to be with God. And the reality is you won't go to heaven if you don't want God. The goal of the gospel is we were restored to God and all of these good things flow from God. He's our goal. He's our aim. He's our, the great gift of the gospel is God himself. And so the beauty of the gospel is that we can be restored to God. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we can be acquitted before God the judge. 
He will cancel our guilt. So we, we talked a couple weeks ago in Genesis 3 about how there's three primary emotional reactions to sin in the world that we all are familiar with. Guilt, shame, and fear. So what does God do in the gospel? He cancels our guilt. Colossians 2 says that on the cross, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. He's nailed it to the cross. All of the just judgment due our sin has been paid in full by Christ so that our guilt is canceled before God the judge. But that's not all. We can also be adopted by God the Father. He will remove our shame. as a second effect of sin that we saw in Genesis 3. And through what Jesus did on, behalf, on our behalf, God will take us in our shame as sinners and turn us into his sons and daughters in his family with honor. Oh, don't miss this. It's not just a picture of God as judge declaring us not guilty. It is that, but it is so much more. He could have declared us not guilty and just left it at that. But in saving us, in saving you, God the judge not only looks on you in light of what Christ has done and says, not guilty, but then this judge gets up off the bench, comes down to where you are, takes the chains off of you and says, come home with me as my child. The good news of the gospel in Christ, we can be acquitted before God the judge, adopted by God the Father, and at the same time, we can be assured by God the King. He will overcome our fear. That third emotional effect of sin in our lives because Christ has conquered the enemy we could not conquer, namely death itself. In him, we have nothing to fear, nothing to fear forever. So the good news of the gospel is that we, think about it, we as sinners who rebelled against God or separated from God or dead without God, we can be restored to God. How? How is that possible? And the gospel answers that question only through faith in Jesus. Now follow with me here. This is where I want to be careful not to dilute or not to complicate faith. And these are basic truths that we come back to over and over and over again. We need to come back to over and over again. So follow this. First and foremost, Jesus is the basis of salvation. The only way you or I could be declared innocent before God is based on someone else's innocence because we don't have it we don't have you and i on our own could never stand before god and claim innocence no matter what we've done no matter how committed we are no matter how radical we might be we cannot cover up the fact that we have sinned against god and we have no basis for righteousness in ourselves we need the righteousness the innocence of another to be credited to us that is where jesus comes in he is the only basis of salvation the only way we can be acquitted adopted assured by god the king but then, like we talked about earlier, well, how is, how is his work then applied to our lives? That's where faith comes in. Faith is the means of salvation. Faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ, the work of Christ, is applied to our lives. Now, now think about this with me. Why faith? Why is faith the means of salvation? Why did God design, ordain faith to be the means of salvation? Why, why not love? Or why not humility? Or why not joy? Why not wisdom? Why has God designed faith to be the only means of salvation? And here's why. Because faith is the anti-work. Faith is the realization that there is nothing, nothing you can do. No amount of love you can show. No amount of kindness or generosity you can show. No amount of joy you can have. No amount of radical obedience you can accomplish. Faith is the acknowledgement that there is nothing you can do but trust in what has been done for you. Faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we come to Jesus in faith, we're essentially saying, I I give up. I will not depend on myself. Anything I can do, have done, or will do. I can never make myself right before you. So I trust in you and depend on you completely to do that which I could never do myself. And then, once we say that, so once we assume this posture of faith in Christ, then then works are the evidence of salvation. So when we truly understand faith, we realize that faith automatically leads to works. I mean, the best way to put this, simplest way to put this is faith works. It, it works. It's the whole book of James. It's the whole book of What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. 
Faith results in action, always. And it makes sense. When your soul is resting upon the grace of Christ, when your life revolves around Christ at the center, then you begin to love as Christ loves. You begin to walk as Christ walks. You begin to lay down your life for others as Christ has laid down his life for you. And these are not works that are done in some vain attempt to earn the favor of God. No, you realize that you're justified before God solely based on faith in Jesus. And your works are simply the fruit, they're the overflow of that faith in him. It's his grace working through you as you trust in him. Jesus the basis, faith the means, works the evidence, the overflow of salvation. Now, all of this, of course, revolves around a proper understanding of faith. So what is biblical faith? What is this faith that restores us to God? And it's at this point I want to to ask every person in this room, if you have this kind of faith that we're about to talk about. We've just talked about how we can so dilute it, we can complicate it, we can get so confused about faith. So I want to ask you as we walk through this to look in your life, in your heart, and say, is this the kind of faith that I have in Jesus? What is biblical faith that restores us to God? That question leads us to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1. First words out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark And in a very similar way, almost the exact same first words that we see in his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. So listen to them. We'll start in verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the Gospel of God. So he's proclaiming the Gospel, and he's saying, here it is, underline this verse, memorize this verse. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Great verse, verse 15. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel and this, Jesus says, this is the proper response to the gospel. Two words, you might circle them in your Bible. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, those are the two words that you will see over and over and over again to describe how we respond to the gospel. Jesus says here, repent. And you get to the book of Acts. First Christian sermon is preached in Acts chapter 2. Crowds say, what shall we do? And Peter replies, first word, repent. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, 8, 22, 17, 30, 26, 20, repent, 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 repent. And then there are other times where the gospel invitation revolves around the word believe. So Acts 16, 31, a Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And we see believe at other points in Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Acts 14, 23. There's an emphasis on belief. So from the very beginning here and throughout the rest of the New Testament, you see two main words describing faith in Christ, repenting and believing. So this is the picture of biblical faith that's in this Threads booklet. When we place our faith in Christ to restore us to God, what does this involve? Well, first, we turn from our sin and ourselves. We repent. That's what it means to repent. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30, God told his people, repent and turn from all your transgressions. Now, practically, what does this mean? Well, think about it in light of all that we've already covered in our understanding of the sinfulness of man, our problem before God. When we repent, we confess our sinfulness. We acknowledge that we have rebelled against God, that as a result, we are separated from God. And we confess that apart from His grace, we are dead, spiritually, eternally dead. And this is key. Repentance is not trying to fix ourselves before God. Repentance is saying, I can't fix myself. God, I have a sin problem that only you can solve. C.S. Lewis said, we don't come to God as bad people trying to become good people. We come as rebels to lay down our arms. In repentance, we confess our rebellion, our separation, our deadness, spiritual deadness without. We confess our sinfulness. And at the same time, we die to our selfishness. Now, follow with me here. We've already established, we talked about this a ton a couple of weeks ago. And mentioned it just a minute ago. How the essence of sin is self. Putting ourselves on the throne that only God deserves to be on. Putting ourselves, what we want, what we think is best for our lives, at the center of our lives. And so to repent means that we say, no, self no longer needs to be at the center. God, you need to be at the center. You alone, God, belong at the center of my life. And in this way, we're dying to ourselves. Dying to our selfishness. Now, I'm not saying that once we repent, that we never again struggle with selfishness. 
the desire to put self back at the center of our lives. We do, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But this point of repentance involves saying, I confess my sinfulness from God, before God, and I am turning from my sin and myself, from my self-indulgence, all my attempts to please myself apart from God, even turning from my self-righteousness, all my attempts to please God with all my good works. I'm turning from my sin and myself, and I am trusting. So follow this. In repentance, we turn from our sin and ourselves, and then, in belief, we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. So turn me over to Romans chapter 10. You'll turn four books of the Bible over to your right. Past Luke, John, Acts, and you'll come to Romans and find chapter 10 there. And even while you're turning there in your pages, see an illustration of faith. So when you turn from one thing, you're turning to something else. Right? Right now in your Bible, you're turning from Mark 1 and you're turning to Romans 10. Likewise, in our lives, when you turn from sin in yourself, you're turning to someone or something else. From to. It's not like one of these things happens and another happens years later in time. No, they happen at the same time. As we're turning from, we're turning to. So what does it mean to turn to Christ? Well, let's listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The Bible says there, if you confess with your mouth, so underline this verse, memorize this verse, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Keep going in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you see it? What is belief? Well, well, here's what happens biblically when we believe in Jesus. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe. We know in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. This is belief that saves. So faith involves a turning from sin and from self and a trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And his function here as Savior and Lord are both involved here. On one hand, we're believing in Jesus as the Savior who died for us. So you look at this picture on the back of the Threads booklet and you realize, okay, I'm separated from God, dead without God, I cannot make my way back to God, but Jesus has done what I could not do. He's lived the life I couldn't live, died the death I deserved to die, conquered the enemy I couldn't conquer. So that when I turn from my sin and myself and trust in him, I am restored to God. Because of the Savior who died on a cross for me and rose from the dead. So you believe that. And this is part of this faith here. But if we're not careful, we can stop right there. And think that's all that faith is when it's not all that faith is. And it makes sense that it's not all that faith is. If repentance is just turning from my sin, then all I need is somebody to save me from my sin. But we've already discussed repentance is more than just turning from my sin. Repentance is turning from myself. So from myself at the center of my life to God at the center of my life, which is the second part of Romans 10, 9 here. We believe in Jesus as the Savior who died for us and we submit to Jesus as the Lord who rules over us. In biblical faith, we confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of all, Romans 10, 12 says. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. You know what's interesting? The book of Acts right before Romans, the story of how the gospel spread throughout the church, Jesus is referred to as Savior in the book of Acts two different times. Two times he's referred to as Savior. Do you know how many times he's referred to as Lord? In the book of Acts, he's referred to 92 times as Lord. This is the dominant title for Jesus in the New Testament. He is Lord. He's Lord. And so connect this to what we were just talking about. When we repent, we die to our selfishness. This is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. Great verse that sums up biblical faith. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I've died to myself. I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great verse. It sums up biblical faith. Biblical faith is turning from our sin and from ourselves. Confessing our sin, dying to our selfishness, and trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. As the merciful Savior who died for us and the sovereign Lord who rules over us. 
Now, one more thing about faith, which is, I think, extremely important. When we repent and believe, when we turn and trust, this is an initial moment of faith in time that leads to inevitable growth in faith over time. So it's a moment that leads to growth. What we're talking about here in Mark 1, Romans 10, is we're talking about a point in time where we repent and believe, where we decide to turn from our sin and ourselves and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And at that moment, we are restored to God. At that moment. Just like there's a moment when a baby is born. Jesus uses language in John chapter 3. There's a moment where we're born again, born spiritually. We're restored to God. And at that moment, we are restored to God in all the ways we talked about above. The initial moment of faith. We're acquitted before God the Father, God the Judge, adopted by God the Father, assured by God the King of eternal life with Him. All of that happens at the moment of faith. So over the last couple of months, by God's grace, uh, a couple of friends of mine have come to the point where they have turned from their sin and themselves and have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And at the moment they did that, at the moment of faith, they were declared right before God and adopted as his sons. And they are assured by God, the king of an inheritance in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. All of that happens at the moment of faith. And it begs the question of every single person in this room then. Have, have you experienced that moment of faith? I wish, I wish I could ask every single individual in this room this question. Just individually, I wish I could ask, have you Put your faith in Jesus like this. Have you turned from your sin and yourself? I'm not asking if you've been involved in church. I'm not asking if you've done this or that your whole life. I'm asking if you, put, if you died to selfishness, confessed your sinfulness, the fact that you've rebelled against God or separated from God, dead without God. Have you done that? And if not, then I, I urge you to do that now. You say, well, what, do I need to do something? No, that's the whole point. It's not based on what you can do. It's based on what's been done for you. So in your heart, say, yes. I get it. Yes, I've rebelled against God. I've separated from God. I'm dead without God. Jesus has lived the life I couldn't live. He's died the death I deserve to die. He's conquered the enemy I cannot conquer. I trust in him. I'm turning from my sin to myself, and I'm trusting him as Savior and Lord. And when in our hearts we do that, God declares us right before him. This is glorious news to anybody who will trust in Christ. As Savior, submit to Him as Lord, the loving Lord who loves you, gave His life for you, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. So I invite you to do that now. And then, whether that's happened right now in your life, whether that happened 50 years ago in your life, that moment in time begins a process of growth over time. Where we grow more and more, we learn daily about what it means to turn from sin in ourselves and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily. Daily. It's a process. It's turning from sin in ourselves. It's not, it's not just a point in time. It's a process that then carries out after that point in time. To turn from our sin, turn from ourselves. There's a constant battle with sin and self in the Christian life. But all the while, we're trusting in Jesus as the Savior of our sin, learning what it means more and more every day to submit to Him as Lord. And as our faith grows, we come to new and greater realizations about who He is and what He's done for us and what it means to submit to Him. But that doesn't mean we're getting saved all over again. It means that our faith is growing. And it will continue to grow until one day when this life is over, we'll be fully united, restored to God forever, which we're going to talk about next week. So this is biblical faith turning from our sin and ourselves, trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the Bible says this is the only way. Such faith is the only way that we can be restored to God. So I, I invite you if, you, if you've never done so, to put your faith in Christ tonight and be restored to God. This is the greatest news in all the world. God has made a way for you to be restored to Him by turning from your sin and yourself and trusting in Him. Repent and believe the gospel. And then, and then, Christian, share this gospel. So call people to repent and believe, to turn and trust, because this is the only way. Our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and people among the nations, this is the only way they will ever be restored to God. So how do we weave this gospel thread then in the fabric of our everyday conversations? And 
natural, authentic, daily basis? How do we share the necessity of faith with people around us? Well, here's some places to start. First, I want to encourage you. Take advantage of every opportunity you have to tell your story. Take advantage of every opportunity you have to tell your story. Every follower of Jesus in this room has a story of faith in Christ. And we need to be ready to share it at any moment. So let me ask you a question. Let me put it this way. If you had one minute right now to tell me how Christ has transformed your life, could you maximize that minute? What if you had five minutes? What if you had ten minutes? And what I'm saying tonight is, if, if we need to be able to maximize anything, we need to be able to maximize that minute. Or that five minutes, or that ten minutes. If we're going to be good at anything, we need to be good at telling how God, by His grace, has transformed our hearts for His glory. This gospel that saved us from eternal damnation apart from God. We need to be good at telling others, not just what God's done in history, but what God has done in our lives. So, my challenge for you this week, and I'm going to come back to this later, my challenge for you is to share your story of how God has saved you through faith in Christ, to share that with one person this week. So amidst all these practical exhortations, this is the one that's just going to rise to the top tonight. One person. So think specifically about people maybe you're praying for that they'll come to Christ. How can you weave your story this week into the fabric of your conversation with them? Maybe it's over the phone. Maybe it's over lunch or coffee. Maybe it's something you write to them in an email or this antiquated thing we call a letter or something like that. However you want to do it. I want to challenge you to share your story with one other person this week who doesn't know Christ. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But, but, well, keep going with me here. Some practical encouragement as you do. One, keep it simple. Keep it simple. So your goal is not to take somebody on an exhausting, circuitous trip down spiritual memory lane with half a dozen plot lines, 16 main characters, complete with all the aisles that you have walked in church and all the angels who have appeared to you in your bedroom. Just keep it simple. Keep <laughs> it simple. Just think, what was my life like before I... Before I put my faith in Jesus, how did I come to put my faith in Jesus? How did I come to turn from my sin to myself, trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord? And what has my life been like since I've been, you've heard that, you've heard people tell that story before. What has my life been like since I was restored to God through Jesus? What's it like to be acquitted before God the judge? What's it like to be adopted by God the Father? What's it like to be assured by God the King of eternal life with Him? How does that affect the way you look at your past, the way you look at your present, even present difficulties? How does that affect the way you look at your future? No need to dwell on the drama. No need to feel like you don't have a great story because it's not dramatic enough. I came to faith in Christ when I was eight years old. So when I share my story, I don't tell people about all the drugs and alcohol and wild living I was involved in before I trusted in Christ. When I was seven years old, I don't have to. I, I tell people that I, that I was separated from God and in my church-going self, I thought that what I did could earn the favor of God. I thought, like many people think in our culture, that God loved me based on what I did for Him. And I came to the realization that God loved me not based on what I do for Him, but based on what He has done for me. And so I gave up trying to earn His favor and I trusted the favor that He had given me in Jesus. And at that point in life, when I turned from my sin and myself and I trusted him as Savior and Lord, I can't say that everything's been perfect since then, but I have found God not only sufficient to save me from my sin, but sufficient to satisfy my soul more than anyone or anything else in this world put together. I think that's a pretty good story. And so every single Christian in this room has a similar yet unique story that God has woven into your life. So share it simply. You think about illustrations in Scripture. You think about John 3. You got Nicodemus. His story, I realized I needed to be born a second time and that by God's love for me, I could start all over. You got a Samaritan woman in John 4 who says, he, Jesus knows everything about me, even the worst things about me, but I realized he loves me anyway. You know, John 8, a woman caught in adultery. I was about to be condemned, stoned, totally ostracized when Jesus stepped in the gap for me. You know, John 9, a man born blind. I was blind, now I see. These are good stories. So think about your life. For some of you, your entire life was once marked by fear. You wore fear like a straitjacket that paralyzed you. But then you came to faith in Christ, and he's given you a freedom and security that's found nowhere else in this world, and nothing in this world can take it from you. 
Others of you, before you met Christ, you had this plaguing sense of aloneness. Maybe you grew up in a, in a broken or dysfunctional family and spent days alone, nights isolated. But you met Christ and through Christ, God adopted you. And now you know what it means to be loved and cared for and wanted. Some of you have been tormented by guilt or shame all of your life because of mistakes you've made in the past. You can't seem to get over and you've been haunted by those mistakes at every turn. And you've tried every avenue, every relationship you could to try to cover up, but nothing could until you came to faith in Jesus and you realized he has covered them all. All the guilt, all the shame, and you're no longer held captive by what you once did. So there's all kinds of stories all across the room. So keep it simple. Keep it focused. Keep it focused on the greatness of God. Obviously, remember, God's the hero of the story, not us. So keep it focused on what he's done, not what you've done. And this is key because some of us are timid about sharing our story because we don't want to sound like we're boasting as we talk about ourselves. But remember, this is the point of the gospel. This is not a story about what you have done. This is a story about what God has done for you. So keep your story focused on God. Keep your story focused on the threads of the gospel. Meaning, weave the gospel like we've talked about it. God's character, our sinfulness, sufficiency of Christ, necessity of faith. Weave these truths into the fabric of your story so that you share. I realize God's holy, just, and gracious. I realized that I was I rebelled against him. I was separated from him. I was dead without him. I realized that Jesus lived the life I couldn't live. Died the death I deserved to die. Conquered the enemy I couldn't conquer. And I turned for myself and trusted in him. So just like that, you've got the gospel woven into your story. Now, along those lines, I encourage you to keep it understandable. Even with the language we use, we need to be careful to speak in terms that people that we're sharing with, namely non-Christians, understand what we're saying. So we could think of a whole list of words that would not make sense to somebody who doesn't know Christ. There's extreme examples. Like, I wouldn't use propitiation in your story or expiation. Don't tell somebody how you were justified by the Holy Ghost when he regenerated your heart, revealing your depravity before his divinity, restoring your connectivity with the sovereign king in Christianity. They will think you are weird. So don't, don't do that. So there's extreme examples like that. But then there's more overlooked examples, even like repent and believe. So right, when many people hear repent, they think of it. TV preacher sitting on a golden sofa raining down condemnation on them. So, so, and then when it comes to belief, we've talked about it already. Many people think belief's not that big a deal. After all, a lot of people believe in Jesus. So that's why we've used the word even in here, return and trust. It, it's certainly not repent and believe are bad words. These are great biblical words. And it's not even wrong that we use them. But if we use words like that, we need to make sure we give context, definition, meaning behind those words. So put yourself in the shoes of people who don't have knowledge about Christ and Picture yourself sharing the story. What makes sense and what doesn't make sense? And how can you communicate well? Keep it understandable. Be humble and prayerful. Humility is huge. There, there may be no quicker way to send somebody you're sharing with to the hills than to play a, the piety card. We don't tell our story to others in ways that we imply that we've got our act together. And they're the pitiable lost people, inferior and substandard to us in our way of life. Don't forget who you are and don't forget why you have a story. And don't forget that your story is still a journey. So be humble and prayerful, asking God, even as you're sharing, asking God to draw this person into this grand story of the gospel. And then finally, be passionate and be yourself. Passionate and yourself. Just as a man or woman in love talks about the one they love, share about Jesus with joy and delight and passion, not with fear and shame and weirdness and trepidation. Be passionate. But don't think that's even something you have to manufacture either. Be yourself. God has sovereignly woven a story into your life. So your life, where you're sitting, God's woven a story into your life that has the potential to have profound effect on others' lives for all of eternity. So be yourself. This is the story of how Jesus has changed you, saved you forever. So look for an opportunity this week to share your story. I'm going to come back to that. Let me keep going here. Talking about restoration. So how can we weave this thread of the fact that we can be restored to God into our everyday conversations? We've talked about guilt, shame, and fear being three primary effects of sin in the world, in our lives. And as a result of that, we will encounter people all around us who struggle with guilt, shame, and fear. This is the human condition. So in conversations about guilt, which will inevitably happen, talk about forgiveness in Christ. When people around you talk about guilt, when they show evidence of feeling guilty because of something they've done, then tell them how this guilt problem has been addressed by God. Tell them about how no matter what we've done, we can be forgiven completely through faith in Jesus. I was talking with one, one person recently who was hitting a low point in life and just saying, I've messed up in this way and that way. 
And I was able to look back at that person and say, wouldn't it be nice if you could just wipe the slate completely clean? And obviously said, yes, that'd be incredible. And so I shared with him how this is exactly what God does for us. Through faith in Christ, the slate is wiped completely clean. What good news. It's great news. So to share that. In conversations about shame, talk about honor in Christ. So don't think just in terms of guilt and innocence. Think in terms of honor and shame as well. This is the context in which many cultures live around the world in which the Bible in many ways is written. When we see Jesus coming, he's taking those who are dirty and he's making them clean. He's taking those who are sick and he's bringing, making them healed. Bringing, taking those who are deaf and bringing them to life. The whole picture here is, is look for opportunities to point to how God takes us from the shame of sin to honor as sons and daughters. How? Through faith in him. So look for ways to point people to how they're restored to God in this way. In conversations about fear, talk about freedom in Christ. All kinds of people bound by all kinds of fears in this world. It looks different in different cultures, but even here, whether it's superstitions or anxiety, such a huge issue in our culture. So when people are expressing fear about what, what's going to happen in this job situation, what's going to happen in this relationship, or when people are expressing fear in response to a cancer diagnosis or a tumor discovery, and conversations about fear point to the freedom that's found in Christ, a freedom that, from fear that's only possible through trust in Jesus, who has conquered sin, Satan, and death itself. So look around you. However people express it, People have guilt, shame, and fear. There's a longing in the soul to be restored to God. So point to how this restoration can happen through faith in Jesus. Guilt canceled. Honor restored. Fear completely taken away. And then when it comes to faith, so talking about turning, point to the mercy of Christ when people around you see their sin. You think about it. Every single story of Christ's follower in this room revolves around a time in our life when we came face to face with our sin, Right? Some circumstance, some situation came about where we found ourselves confronted with our sin and we knew in our hearts that something was wrong. And somebody told us, somebody told us that we were separated from God, that that's what was wrong. And then that somebody told us that we could be restored to God through Jesus. Thank God somebody told us. So when you see somebody whose circumstances or situations are confronting them with their need for God, for God's sake, tell them. Tell your kids and your co-workers and your neighbors when they show evidence of acknowledging sin in their lives. Tell them Christ is merciful and he will save them. Point them to the mercy of Christ and point to the presence of Christ when people around you come to the end of themselves. So we, we talked about this a bit last week, but most of our personal stories of meeting Jesus for the first time revolve around a time when we discovered that the things we'd been searching after and seeking in this world were not what we hoped they would be. We saw the insufficiency of worldly pleasure and we felt a deep sense of our need for something more so be sensitive then to times when God not by coincidence by design puts people around us who are seeing the insufficiency of worldly pleasure worldly pursuits and they're at the end of themselves what are you going to say to them in that moment please 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 don't tell them to believe in themselves don't tell them to keep trying and it'll get better Don't tell them they're good. Tell them they need Jesus and he's there. Ready to take their life under his loving and merciful care. We undercut the gospel whenever we encourage this self-sufficient, man-centered way of life that contemporary culture and pop psychology are selling all over the place. Don't give them that. That damns. Give them hope. And we don't have to look to ourselves and the things of this world. We got truth that goes beyond transcends this world it's better than everything this world has put together and then talking about trusting encourage people around you to see the lordship of christ so yes point to jesus as the savior who died on the cross he is that he's definitely that but also point to him as the sovereign lord who rules and reigns over everything in the universe we know philippians 2 9-11 followers of christ we know that one day every knee around us is going to bow and every tongue around us is going to confess that jesus christ is lord We know. So if we know that's coming in the future, if we love the people around us, we'll point people to this reality in the present. So tell people, Christ is in control. 
There are no coincidences. Christ is in control. He's Lord. And then urge people around you to receive the love of Christ. And this is where we remember that the gospel is not intended to be shared just for information's sake. We share the gospel to elicit response. When we share the gospel, we're calling people to faith in Christ, to action. So next week, I want to bring these threads together and talk about exactly how we do that. But I want to set the stage for how we do that with this word, urge. Urge people around you to receive the love of Christ. So sometimes Christians say, well, I don't want to push somebody to do something that they're not ready to do, or I can't decide for them. And that's true. That is completely true. But here's the deal. If I walk into a room and I see somebody that I care about with a gun pointed at themselves, I'm not going to sit back and say, well, it's your decision. You do what you want to do. No. I'm going to urge them. I'm going to plead with everything I have for them not to do this because this is a matter of life and death. So how much more so should we urge and plead in matters of eternal life and death? This is where I want us to be really careful because in all of this, in encouraging one another, I hope in good ways, to weave threads of the gospel, talk about the character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ. It's good. But if we just do that and we never come to the point where we're urging people to respond to Christ, we are not sharing the gospel. It's not just information calling people to respond to Christ. So who have you, recently, who have you urged to receive the love of Christ? Who have you pleaded to receive the love of Christ? And I want to encourage us to, to urge and to plead out of the overflow of faith in Christ, love for people. And then I put two particular exhortations when it comes to two of the most common questions that I get, and I've heard even in this series when it comes to sharing the gospel, particularly in this culture. One, how do I share the gospel with children? And two, how do I share the gospel with cultural Christians around me? So let's, let's think about these. First, with, with children. How do, how do I share the gospel with my children, other children? How do I know when they're really understanding the gospel? And there's so much that could be explored here. I just want to give a few thoughts that I hope will be helpful in talking with children about faith. So one, I encourage you to maximize interaction. Maximize interaction. When talking with children about the gospel, specifically about responding to the gospel, as you share the gospel, constantly ask questions, encourage conversation, and use open-ended questions. Not yes and no. Did you understand what I just shared? Or are you ready to trust in Jesus? Yes and no questions. They're, they're not most effective. I, I remember, I, remember I, I mentioned I, I, I grew up going, involved in church. I remember where I was sitting. I was probably about 10 years old. In a worship service one Sunday night. And I was over here. There was a guest preacher there. And he was preaching. At the end, he gave an invitation. And he gave all kinds of different ways for people to respond. And one of the things he said is, he said, during this time, we're going to be singing. And if, if you want to, I want to encourage, if you, if you see somebody in this room that you would like to encourage, then I want to challenge you to go to them and just encourage them, just build them up. So I'm sitting over here, I'm 10 years old, and, and we, we start standing and singing, and the pastor's standing down here at, at the front uh, to receive people, and, and nobody's coming. And I'm over here thinking, I love the pastor, and I want to encourage him. And so, so I, I move out from my aisle, and I come up to the pastor, and I take his hand, and I say, Pastor, thank you for all you do for the church. And uh, music was loud. He's a little older, harder hearing. And I don't, he didn't understand what I said, so he asked me to repeat. I said, uh, uh, thank you for all you do for the church, uh, how you lead us to Christ. And he looked back at me, kind of this puzzled look. And I remember this like it was last night. He looks back at me, and he says, so you want to rededicate your life to Christ? I didn't know what to do. So I, I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and he, he ta- and we, we start praying together. He sits me down in the front row. I start filling out a card, check, re- rededicate my life to Christ. We finish the song. He brings me up in front of the church. It's like young David here has rededicated his life to Christ. My parents come and stand with me. My mom's got tears in her eyes. I'm like, ah. 
how this happened? So, so use open-ended questions. So yes and no goes down roads. That, I mean, anybody, any kids going to say yes or no? To who knows what? So all right, open-ended questions, right? Open-ended questions. Who is God? What does it mean for us to be sinners? What has God done for us? How can we be, have a relationship with God? Ask open-ended questions. Discussion about the gospel and about faith. Along the way, utilize illustration. So pictures like the one that are on the back of this booklet or stories or concrete examples. Think about concrete examples of what these theological terms mean. It's been a joy walking through these, these memory verses. And uh, well, I remember in Proverbs 17, 15. I mean, sitting around with a seven, or six and five-year-old and they're saying, what does abomination mean? And say, like, okay, abomination. And, and trying to think of a story to illustrate. I remember, I remember where I was sitting in sixth grade with a man I still keep in touch with who... Uh, who we were talking about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. And my dream as a sixth grader was to be a professional baseball player one day. And so, and I'd shared that with this guy, and he's sitting with me, and he says, now David, to follow Jesus as Lord means that if Jesus says that, that you'd, you need to do something besides be a professional baseball player, you need to be willing to put down your bat and your glove and, and do what he says. And I remember that. That was, that, was, that was a clear picture in my sixth grade mind of he's, he's Lord. And my faith went to a deeper level as a result of this concrete example, illustration of what it means for Jesus to be Lord. So I laid down the dream right there. It's a good thing I did. But the, the whole picture is utilize illustration, maximize interaction, and use repetition. Now this is probably most important, for, particularly for children in our own homes or that we're regularly involved in ministry with and life with. So parents and others who are working with children, I encourage you to constantly emphasize the threads of the gospel. Parents in your home with your kids, others in sharing life and ministry with children all day long, every day, every chance, talk about the character of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, and the urgency of eternity. Now, sometimes people think, well, I want my children's faith to be their own, so I'm not going to pressure them. And as we talked about, there's truth to that. Our goal is not to manipulate anybody into faith, and particularly children into faith. And obviously, as a child grows older, they'll, become, they'll come more and more into their own. But as long as we're able, teach them the gospel. We teach our kids how to eat and drink, how to put on their clothes, how to make their bed, how to say yes, ma'am, and no, sir, how to play sports, how to play music, how to do all kinds of things. Certainly, teaching them the gospel is more important than all of those things put together. So prioritize more than anything, more than anything, prioritize speaking the gospel day in and day out to your children so that it becomes a part of the fabric of your home and their understanding of, from the very beginning of their lives. Now, this can lead to challenges in a good way because children who are four or five or six or seven or eight or however many years old who are being saturated with the gospel will oftentimes begin to respond to the gospel, talk about becoming a Christian and then one of the biggest questions that many Christian parents wonder about is, well, when do I know that my child is a Christian? How do I know exactly when they become a Christian? And, and obviously that's, that's a great question. But at the same time, this is where I want to encourage parents in particular not to fret too much over that question. So yes, we, we've discussed this. There comes a point in time when we place faith in Christ, a point in time where we're forgiven by God, adopted by God. But that point in time may not be quite as discernible in a child's life who's grown up immersed in the gospel as it might be in a 40-year-old man's life who hears the gospel for the first time. So you think about when, when a 40-year-old man, let's say he's got a, a history of drugs and drinking, whatever, and he hears the gospel for the first time and he responds to it, there's likely going to be a much more dramatic turning point than you would probably see in an eight-year-old who's grown up hearing the gospel all of his or her life. And that's okay. Wouldn't it be a good thing for one of our children to look back in their life and say, I can hardly ever remember a time when I wasn't turning from my sin to myself and trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So this is where I want to encourage you to continually encourage in children a posture of turning and trusting. Meaning, instead of fretting over when this point of faith is, which it may be discernible in a 7-year-old or 8-year-old or 12-year-old or, or whatever. It may be a discernible point. But instead of trying to make that point happen, instead encourage a posture, an attitude toward God of continually turning from sin and self and trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So I can't put this any better than a friend of mine, uh, 
who's pastor of the Summit Church up in North Carolina, J.D. Greer, and we work together as, as churches and mission in all kinds of different ways. And J.D. recently wrote a book that, that came out called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And it's a book about assurance of salvation. It is an excellent book that I would recommend to anyone who struggles with assurance of salvation. How do I know if, if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I put my faith in Christ? He explores biblical foundations for assurance. He talks in the beginning about how he has set the Guinness Book of World Records for how many times you can ask Jesus into your heart. Just constantly thinking, that's what I need to do in order to know that I'm saved. And, and so in the middle of this book, there's just a small section where he talks about leading his kids to Jesus. And when I read this, I thought, oh, I, I want to share this with all of our parents because it just says it better than, than I, I could. So listen to this. He writes, as a father of four young children, I have often reflected on the best way to lead them to faith. I want their decision to follow Jesus to be significant, but I also don't want them to go through what I went through. I know that when you present kids with a don't you want to be a good girl and make daddy happy and accept Jesus and not go to a fiery hell, of course they say yes. Praying a prayer in such a situation may have little to do with actual faith in Christ and have more to do with making daddy happy. For that reason, many parents don't want to push their child to make a decision for Christ. What if we coerce them into praying a prayer they don't understand? And that keeps them from really dealing with the issues later when they really understand it. Might having them pray a prayer too early on inoculate them from really coming to Jesus later, giving them false assurance that keeps them from dealing with their need to be saved? I understand that fear. At the same time, I know that children are capable of faith. In fact, Jesus tells adults that for them to be saved, they must become like children, not vice versa. And Jesus says that those of us who make it difficult for kids to put their faith in him ought to have a millstone tied around our necks and be thrown into the sea, Matthew 18. So I don't want to ever discourage my kids from faith. The dilemma is resolved, however, by seeing salvation as a posture toward Christ and not as a ceremony. There's only one posture ever appropriate to Christ, surrender to his lordship and believing that he did what he said he did. From the very beginning of their lives, I want my kids to assume that posture. Why would I want them to ever have a different posture toward Christ than repentance and belief? The opposite of believing is unbelieving. The opposite of repenting is rebelling. So I teach my children all on the way to be surrendered toward Jesus and believing what he said he would accomplish, he had accomplished. I explain to them often what Christ has done and I encourage them to pin their hopes of righteousness on his work and not theirs. Whenever they think about their hopes for heaven, I want their minds to go to what Jesus did on Calvary. And for the first time I speak to my, from the first time I began to speak to my kids about Jesus, I presented him as Lord. It was literally the first thing I whispered in their ears when they were born. Over the years, I've told them that if they would trust in Christ's finished work as their own and follow him as Lord, they would be saved. But what if they don't really grasp all that salvation entails? What if they don't really know exactly why they are leaning upon him, why they need his grace? Certainly, as my kids grow older, they'll have moments of insight in which they better understand his grace and defining moments in which they own their posture toward him. But it is a posture I can encourage them toward from the beginning. Again, only one posture is ever appropriate toward Christ. Repent Repenting and believing, do you ever want to hold your kids back from that or teach them any other way to relate to Christ? To be honest, I'd even be okay if they ended up not knowing the precise moment they received Christ. What a great evidence of the grace of God to be able to say, for as long as I can remember, I've recognized the lordship of Jesus and believed what he, that he did what he said he did. He finishes, he says, children that grow up in unbelieving homes will likely have a memorable conversion to Christ where they pass from darkness to light. But I want my kids to grow up in the light. Personally, frankly, I'd prefer they not have an exciting testimony that involves years of rebellion, foolishness, and unbelief. I want each of my kids to have a nice, boring testimony, to be kids who spend their whole lives enraptured by what God did for them in Jesus. The bottom line, it's never too young to begin trusting in and surrendering to Jesus. That's, that's it. That's it. It is never too young to begin telling children to turn from sin and self and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So encourage them to take that posture toward Christ. And then, and what about talking with cultural Christians about faith? And what I mean here is, is people who claim to be Christians, who would profess to be Christians, but Christianity is, is nominal. It's in name only. And, and that's very common around here. Now, obviously, no one but Jesus knows the heart of a man or a woman. But at the same time, Jesus tells us that we will know a tree by its fruit. And if there's no fruit of faith in Christ, or if there's fruit of lack of faith in Christ, then there's reason to wonder if there's really faith in Christ there in the first place. So I've had numerous people ask me during this series, well, how do I share the gospel with this friend or coworker, family member who says they're a Christian, but there doesn't seem to be fruit? 
So here's some practical encouragements along these lines. One, ask thought-provoking questions. So when you have opportunities to weed these threads of the gospel, ask questions that go below the surface. What is a Christian? Are you a Christian? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great English preacher, used to ask, are you a Christian today? And many people would answer around him, well, I'm trying. And and at that point, he would begin to share that they missed the whole point of Christianity altogether. Or ask, how do you know you're a Christian? Somebody responds with, because of what they've done or what they're doing. And share with them how they can never, we can never be restored to God based on what we've done or what we're doing. Because becoming a Christian involves faith alone, trust alone in what Christ has done. So ask thought-provoking questions. At the same time, avoid or at least clearly define over-familiar terms. So one example that we've talked about would be belief. You ask somebody today if they believe in Jesus, all kinds of people who are not followers of Christ will say yes. So either use a different term or then follow that question with, what does that mean to believe in Jesus? That's why instead of asking, are you a Christian or do you believe in Jesus? I'll often ask, are you a follower of Jesus? So it's helpful. And we're getting below the surface to either avoid or at least clearly define over-familiar terms. But then even still, you might feel like you're not getting anywhere. This is where I would encourage you. Maybe invite them, invite that person to study the Bible with you. If somebody identifies himself as a Christian, then to invite them to study the Bible with you doesn't seem very obtrusive at all. And maybe you go through some sort of Bible study that hits on the essence of what it means to follow Christ. I was talking with, with one person who had done this with, with some girls. And, and girls who would have said they were Christians said, oh, let's do a Bible study together. And in the process, a couple weeks in, one of the girls says, I'm, I'm not a Christian. This is what the Bible says. The Word will do the work. So let the Word do the work. So, and right now this takes time. This takes sacrificing your agenda to, to say, I want to, to spend the time. It's not just going to happen here or there. And a little bit of conversation there. But, but to intentionally walk through the Word and let the Word do the work. Along those lines, expose them to good, gospel-saturated community and resources. Maybe expose them to a small group of believers, church, a faith family, where the love of Christ is clear in action and where faith in Christ is more than nominal adherence, where there's joyful abandonment to Christ and His cause. That will speak volumes. Or, or give them resources to address this. So all kinds of resource we can point people to. And even, I'm not trying to recommend my own book, but that, that the whole part of the reason why I wrote Follow Me is I pray that God would, would be used to jar people out of nominal Christianity to see the essence of what following Christ really means. And I think about, I think about Heather's mom, who we prayed for for years. And Heather was sharing the gospel with for years, over and over. She would have said she was a Christian at every point, yet she was callous toward the gospel. And she wanted nothing to do with conversations about the gospel. And yet she said she was a Christian. There was no fruit of faith in Christ. And after I mean, years and years of praying and sharing, we had, we had given her one book. We'd given her other resources in the past. We'd given her one book. She decides to read this, and it clicks. And it clicks. And she turns from her sin and herself and she trusts in Christ as Savior and Lord a year before she passes away. So, so expose them to good gospel-saturated community and resources. And then last two things I would encourage and really provide a, sum, a, a fitting conclusion here. One, boldly and graciously call them to turn and trust. So we've already talked about how faith is a posture toward God of turning and trusting. And the reality is this is a posture we call each other to in the church. Right? We're we're constantly telling each other, turn from sin yourself, trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's what we say to, to people who are followers of Christ. So say the same thing. Same thing to those who would be professing followers of Christ. When, you, when, when they see evidence of sin in their life, or when, when, when just like when, when there are brothers who look in my life and they see sin, they call me out and say, hey, turn from this day. This is not healthy. So do that. In love, do that. Boldly, yes, but graciously out of love. And how that person responds will will expose the condition of their heart. And hopefully expose the condition of their heart to them. Maybe they'll see, yes, it's wrong. And they'll show that there is faith in Christ that needs to grow in exponential ways. And you're part of helping that faith grow at that point. Or maybe, maybe they don't respond in repentance and faith. And, and hopefully that will reveal that there's a callous heart, heart toward God. I think about one person that I'm praying for and, and would say, profess to be a Christian, but there's no fruit of faith in Christ and there's deliberate, willful going in, into all, a variety of things. And, and I, I, I'm not saying, and I, I, as I shared with him, I remember 
saying, it's not that I'm perfect, I got things figured out. I struggle with sin daily, this battle to turn from sin and self. So I want to be gracious in this, but boldly I just call to me, turn from this. Turn and see the love of Christ. Whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time, just come back or come to him. And this person did not respond, has not responded in repentance and faith, has responded in deeper sin and and so I want to keep doing this, boldly and graciously calling them to turn and trust and keep praying as encourage this posture of faith and repentance. And then along the way, I'm going to, that's what I would encourage you, let's intentionally and humbly weave these gospel threads. So this is the beauty of what we're talking about. This, this series, this I'm praying for our faith family, that we'd be a people who are constantly speaking this gospel to each other and to everybody around us in this community and in the world, trusting that this gospel will do the work. God will expose the condition of people's hearts and God will use this gospel to open the eyes of people's souls to the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus is the basis for salvation. Faith is the means of salvation and works are the evidence of salvation. Followers of Christ must be ready to define faith according to Scripture. We hope you've enjoyed the Thread series. We've got one more week next week. You can listen to all the previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes or at Radical.net. You can also find us on Twitter at Follow Radical or on Facebook by searching Radical. Speaking about hell and God's judgment is likely to turn away many unbelievers. So why are these truths so crucial? We'll find out next week in a sermon entitled, The Urgency of Eternity. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next week.